and just the whole thing it's just really funny and super deep and like the way that he puts everything together you know I think it's just a really uh, smart um, pretty brilliant piece of music just the way that he constructed everything and all of the uh, the impetus behind it and this is a, I mean, it, and hearing this song and really appreciating it really kind of sparked an interest in hip hop production and making music uh, on my own, which is kind of a path that I've been pursuing uh, pretty hardly, like I'd say the last probably 10 years. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives or their lives in general. Parker might be best known as a member of Chicago post-rock quintet Tortoise, which he joined in 1996, and with whom he's recorded seven albums. His solo career spans seven albums as well, with the latest being a co-release between acclaimed labels International Anthem and Nonesuch, and is a tribute to his mother titled Sweet for Max Brown. Pitchfork's review of the record captures Parker's talents aptly. The veteran guitarist has created an effortlessly detailed album, full of tradition and experimentation that spans generations. It lives at the vanguard of new jazz music. The first song Parker chose as being formative for him was Conquistadores by the Chico Hamilton Quintet. (laughs) ¶¶ 
Uh, this was kind of the first song that made me want to play the guitar. Um, uh, my father was a big fan of the Chico Hamilton quintet, which was uh, uh, Chico Hamilton, for people who don't know, was a great drummer. Uh, I think kind of based in New York. Then he moved out to the West Coast and uh, got involved in the studio scene. But uh, he and he he was one of the few band leaders who uh, or few drummers who also led his own bands. Um, and his music was really unique, uh, very groovy, especially at the time, you know. And he had bands and probably from the mid 50s. I mean, it always probably up until he died, like in the early 2000s. But uh, he always had a great guitar player in his band. And on El Conquistadores, the guitarist was uh, this Hungarian guitar player named Gabor Zabo. Um, and you know, the tune, it just has this kind of like really unique uh, unique groove. Um, and his guitar playing is just really beautiful. You know, his sound is amazing. He played an acoustic guitar uh, with a pickup uh, called this Diarmon pickup, and it's a really unique sound. It sounded like he was kind of influenced by, uh, like, surf music, but mixed with jazz. Um and I just, I mean, I used to listen to that song over and over when I was a kid, probably like eight or nine years old. Um, and yeah, it's just what, what really made me want to pick up the instrument and play it. And I kind of haven't stopped ever since. So this is something that um, that uh, came from your your dad, or this is something that he brought into the house? Yeah, yeah, he totally did. Yeah, I mean, he, he collected records, and this was one that he used to listen to. And, I mean, yeah, I mean, he knew I was into music, and he was like, check this out, you know? What age would you have been for this? I was uh, nine years old. And uh, how long before that like desire to play guitar actually turned into doing it? Uh, pretty immediately, you know. I mean, we had a guitar sitting around the house that my sister used to play um, and then she gave it up and I just kind of picked it up and, uh, and, that, and that was the beginning um, and so at that point you were trying to play jazz pretty much or what, what did you have in mind uh, I wasn't really I didn't really uh, I don't know I don't think I was really like looking to, to play jazz uh I was just looking to play some music, you know. I um, I mean, I was pretty young. Um, and all music was still pretty fresh to me at that time. Do you remember the, some of the first stuff you would have learned, like those first actual tunes? Uh, it was more just picking it up. I mean, I mean, you have to keep in mind. I mean, I was just like total beginner at this point. Um, I had a great teacher named or named John Spencer who was one of my father's students at the university where he was teaching uh, 
And uh, I think he saw that I was uh, that I was into improvising, and kind of uh, his approach was to kind of uh, he he kind of had me writing my own songs and improvising uh, immediately from the moment I picked up the instrument. And, you know, I mean, mind you, my own song would be like three notes kind of over and over again on one string, you know, because <laughs> I was just really like just learning how to play the instrument. But from there, he kind of, uh, he used improvising and songwriting to kind of teach me like the really uh, pedestrian kind of cursory uh, introduction to the mechanics of the instrument. Did you um, see Chico Hamilton play live or did you ever meet him? I never met him. No, I never did. Uh, and I never, never saw him play. Um, I would have liked to. The second song Parker chose as essential to his formation as an artist was Return of the Loop Digger by Quasimodo. Yo, it's the loop digger. It's the loop digger. Man, it's the loop digger. My nigga. Some niggas be sampling the same ass shit. Some niggas be looping up them played out hits. But that's more for me plus the peeps I'm down with. We strive to create some way out other shit. But you ain't heard yet. We building up respect. Then come the check. Then I cash chips. You know I go get more stacks of wax. Fuck CDs, cassettes, eight tracks. Uh, the next tune I picked is this tune by Mad Lib or by Quasimodo called The Return of the Loop Digger. Oh, why did you why did you pick that? <laughs> well, it's kind of uh, just in addition to being an amazing just piece of work. It's a uh, well, I mean, I'll, I'll uh, preface it by Quasimodo is the producer Mad Lib's alter ego. Uh, like Mad Lib's is kind of introspective, like weed smoking, like producer dude. And his alter ego is this character he created called Quasimodo, 
who's a more like you know he's a uh like a cut up like kind of a goofball extrovert um when you know it's all madlib making all of this music by himself and uh he makes the voice of quasimodo by slowing down uh analog tape and then he raps on it and when he speeds it up to normal speed the sound of the voice is sped up but the music stays the same so um you know i'm really into uh record collecting and record stores and generally the culture of the record store i think it's a really beautiful thing um and i worked in record stores and i collect records too so he makes this song where mad libs kind of rapping about like collecting records and mining records for samples and making beats um and this is this is a song about when he goes into the record store and Quasimodo is the clerk behind the desk. He's working in the record store. And just the whole thing, it's just really funny and super deep. And like the way that he puts everything together, you know. I think it's just a really uh, smart... Um, pretty brilliant piece of music just the way that he constructed everything and all of the uh the impetus behind it and this is a i mean it, and hearing this song and really appreciating it really kind of sparked an interest in hip-hop production and making music uh on my own which is kind of a path that I've been pursuing uh, pretty hardly, like I'd say the last probably 10 years. So um, about when would this have been? At what point in your your life, your career? Uh, I probably heard this song maybe 20 years ago. I mean, the record came out in 1999, and... uh, the album came out in 99 and I heard it pretty much like right around when it came out and the whole album it's one that I've been obsessed with pretty I mean I've listened to it I I probably listened to the album every day for probably five or six years and uh, I still listen to it at least once a week what I know that this is sometimes hard to encapsulate but what is it do you think that makes something like that stick with you so much that it doesn't doesn't get stale for you well i mean it's a brilliant piece of work you know uh i mean and every time i listen to it i feel like i hear some new things it's really dense um just the content and just the pr- approach and production aesthetics and uh and everything it just sounds so good like i just want to listen to it over and over again i mean it's rare when you find something that uh you know it ends and you just want to start it over again 
So I might have not have the timeline right here, but so this was maybe a little bit before you joined up with Tortoise or around the same time, a little after? It had to be somewhere in that, that period of time, right? Uh, this was... Um, no, I was in Tortoise. I mean, I, I was um, well, in, well into the band, my uh, time with the band. I joined Tortoise in 1996. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the album wasn't even out then. But Tortoise, kind of joining Tortoise is a band. Joining Tortoise was an experience for me that really... Uh, got me interested in the technical aspects of recording music which is something that I find very intriguing about that piece of music Return of the Loop Digger and Mad Lib's music in general it appeals to, to my uh, my curiosity as a uh, someone who's interested in music production so when you joined the band, um, were you already doing your own stuff on the side, and or did this sort of maybe start you on that on that path? Yeah, I wasn't doing so much of my own music when I joined Tortoise. I was trying to figure it out, you know. Um, I had kind of been playing with a few bands, like just playing with friends, and I would present, you know my own ideas to those uh, aggregates of musicians but I hadn't really pursued kind of making any type of solo music at that time I mean to be honest it didn't even really seem in my reality I was I was really uh, more just um, trying to collaborate with as many people as possible at that time the first couple of, uh, at least the first thing I think I can remember seeing that was like a solo project of yours, and please correct me if I'm wrong about this, was sort of, I, w- I don't want to say a straight-ahead jazz album, but it was sort of, it was a jazz album. It was sort of packaged and, and presented as a jazz album. But was this other strain of sort of studio craft and doing music on your own, was that already developing at that point? Uh, yeah, I think it was. I mean, if I'm... I mean, I can kind of uh, guess that the album you're referencing is called Like Coping, which is my first album I did for Delmark Records. Right. Which, which, uh, which was me my attempt at making a jazz record. <laughs> which, uh, I mean, because it was a jazz label. And they kind of presented me this opportunity to, like, make my own record. And I was just like, okay, well, I guess I'll make a jazz record. Um, and it is, but it's pretty weird. I mean, it's it's got some weirdness on there. Um, like, you know, uh, it's a couple tunes on there where we all play in different instruments it's got these interludes with like synthesizers and like and stuff like that there's a lot of um layering on on a few few tunes there's some strange kind of 
electronic influence like free improvisation pieces uh so it's pretty diverse i think it was around that time that i started to uh really um think about different directions that i wanted to take my own music I would say, yeah, right around that time. I didn't mean to imply that it was like, you know, you doing standards, but the, oh, Del- yeah. <laughs> the, the Delmark, you know, imprimatur and, and, you know, I think the cover had like everyone on, you know, standing around kind of posing like, you know, a jazz record. So, yeah, <laughs> and, and you're right, you know, it wasn't like a standard thing, but it was, it sort of came out in that standard mold a little bit. Um, but you know some of the things you've done more recently um seem to be more in line with that um that madlib influence maybe not a lot more sort of um you on your own or um you working more through the studio so it it sounds like you got there yeah yeah for sure yeah i mean a lot of the stuff i do now it's because you know i live in california now um I have a studio at my place where I live. Uh, it's a lot easier for me to make my own music uh, out here. I mean, I'm older now, so I don't go out as much. And I just spend more time at home just kind of like working on stuff around the house. Uh, excuse me. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, you know, I mean... To be honest, man, I mean, all of this is a very organic, uh, natural process for me. You know, it's kind of has to do with my interests change and, you know, my environment changes and like, I kind of shift with, with all of, with both of those things, you know. Um, yeah. So you brought up uh, record stores, and this is um, we actually recorded an episode the other evening, and record stores came up, and there was some discussion of um, how much you can learn in a record store. And I think that you know the the idea is that you know musicians learn all this stuff from playing and from other musicians, and no doubt that that's you know a big part of it. But it seems like what you learn in record stores is underrated at least that's that's where i'm gonna go um what do you think i agree yeah i mean it's record stores i mean they're i think they're the best i mean they're uh i mean obviously they're full of records and (laughs) and rec (laughs) and records are full of information you know I mean, you listen to music now just on the streaming platforms, and there's nothing, man. You don't know who engineered stuff. You don't know who played on it. You don't know when it came out. You don't know where they did it, where anybody lives, what kind of microphones they used. You know, the studio. You don't know anything. You don't know the day of where stuff was recorded. Uh... 
I mean, if you buy a record, all of that stuff is on there. And, you know, if you get interested in one thing, it'll kind of lead you to into more, you know, like different producers and the, the musicians that they employed and the engineers that they used, you know, uh, and plus the artwork. Um, and, you know, then you can get into who designed things and who wrote the liner notes and it could go on forever you know it's a it's a beautiful thing and also uh, record stores used to be I mean and I guess in a way they still are they were kind of a bedrock to communities of musicians you know when I worked in record stores I met so many people so many musicians that uh is a really beautiful thing and also just people who just loved music you know um yeah i can't i record stores are among my favorite things in the world i think that i think you're right i think that there's a certain type of person though that really gets that and i mean i just you know maybe this is oversharing but when I was a little kid, I remember looking at my dad's um, Almond Brothers records, right, and looking right. at looking at the credits and reading, like you know, and they would say who plays this, and you know, and I remember looking at all the pictures and trying to figure out which one was a lead guitar and which one was a slide guitar and which oh, one right. was a rhythm guitar, and I was just like, I was, it, it, you know, it occupied a lot of my mind there for a little while, but I don't think every kid does that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're you're probably right, but every kid <laughs> every kid should. <laughs> That's what I think. The final song Parker chose as being crucial to him was Don Cherry's "Moving Pictures for the Ear." something that's had a very big influence on the musical direction that I've been pursuing it's this Don Cherry album I mean I have it reissued it's called Tibet but the original it's originally um, released as this album called The Eternal Now and there's a tune on there called Moving Pictures for the Ear, which is, um, it's kind of this, like, uh, 
it's repetitive, like hypnotic, uh, kind of North African influenced drone kind of piece that's maybe like 15 minutes long. Um, that and you hear it and it immediately puts you in a zone. Um, I mean that's something I've been uh, pretty interested in drones and repetition and uh, and music when like when you hear it it immediately like uh, creates this space like occup like so strongly occupies this sonic space. Um, that's kind of something I've been searching for the last couple of years. And when I heard this album, um, it, uh, I mean, I had had it for a long time, but then I listened to it one day again, and it really spoke to me in a way that it, it, it hadn't for decades. Um, and kind of uh, one of my really good friends um, and closest collaborators is uh, this musician in Chicago named Joshua Abrams. And he has a group called the Natural Information Society. Yes. And uh, their music is very influenced by Don Cherry's music and this particular piece of music in general. I would say, I mean, Josh... Josh is a really big uh, Don Cherry. Uh, I won't even say fan, but like more a, uh, I don't know, someone who is, who practices music in the wake of, of what someone else has done. I'm not sure what the, the exact terminology for that would be. An acolyte, maybe. Yeah, acolyte, acolyte. That that's good. Yes, yeah. um, moving pictures for the year by Don Cherry. Well, you know, I I would I would detect some of that influence on your your new record, but you know, your new record does a lot of different things. Do you think in the future you might go deeper in this direction? I would think so, yeah, I would. Um, it's hard. I mean, I like so many different things. You know, I mean, I like songs. Um, and, you know, I mean, to be honest, that music, I mean, I'm interested in too many things, I think, to make a whole suite of music that is like that. Um, I mean, maybe I'm not that brave. I, and I like uh, I like songs and shorter things just as much as I like these long, long uh, uh, stagnant pieces. But yeah, I would like maybe I will. I don't know. It's hard hard to say. <laughs> oh, That's all right. Don Cherry is one of those people who makes me think about how. Um, how uh, artistic regard works and how it tends to 
change and come around because, you know, I think at the time he died, it's not, I mean, he was revered by a lot of people and he was certainly famous. And I think, you know, he probably had, a, a you know, enough success that he had a pretty good life. But, you know, he wasn't, I think he's a much more important and revered figure now than he was, um, you know, 30 years ago when he was still recording a good bit. And, um, you know, maybe it just took all this time for people to really understand what he was up to or uh, maybe just the fashions have turned so that it's, you know, people are more interested in what he what he did or some of what he did. Yeah. Yeah, I would say. Uh, I think the, the latter part of your assessment I would uh, agree with. I think the fashions have turned. I mean, there's kind of an interest in, like, this kind of spiritual music among hipsters now and stuff. You know, Alice Coltrane, uh, Alice Coltrane, Sun Ra, um, droney stuff in general. Um, and, you know, I mean, Don Cherry, he was kind of the architect of that, at least in bringing that music into a world of improvised music in, in the West. I mean, that, of course, you know, that's music that has, that people have been making since the beginning of time, but, you know, he kind of like found a place for it in, uh, Western uh, culture, I would say. Well, and it, it's all those all those records now, and I'm sure you know, being a um, record store person and collector, you've seen it too. It's like these days, just about anything with a tabla and a saxophone on it can get a reissue. Not 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 <laughs> right. not trying to be glib, but you know, it's like all that stuff is is being treated like it's you know the Dead Sea Scrolls and a lot of it is really great but like five years after that stuff came out nobody cared about it I mean not really but now it's like yeah. you know these are the holy grails and it's just it's been amusing to watch I have to tell you yeah I'm sure <laughs> yeah but it's good though I mean you know it's nice to have just quality stuff in uh in the sphere no matter what, no matter what it is, you know, I mean, that's kind of a, I mean, as a working musician and a working artist, I mean, my attitude toward a lot of that stuff has to do with, um, with me kind of looking at my, the environment that I have to to exist in in order to like to make work and make a living so you know I mean you, I look at you can see trends come and go I mean some of them are bad uh, and some are good I mean you're kind of happy to see people interested in things that I think are interesting um, yeah yeah well and maybe even if you guess wrong uh, about the trends, then in 30 years, someone will want to pay $200 for one of your records. 
Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, they might. I think some of them sell pretty pretty high now. Uh, in the collector market, but maybe maybe not. <laughs> This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore and NPR. Look for and subscribe to all of WYPR's podcasts at wypr.org slash podcast central. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening.